Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1172, with guest Tudor Girba. Recorded Friday, July 10th. 2015. Hey, it's party time. <laughs> Actually, it's just time for .NET Rocks. Yep, yep. It's the summer, though. It is summer, and it is party time here at the studio. You know, we do Sailfest every year. Oh, Not of course. The studio, but the town of New London does this huge festival. Thousands and thousands of people coming. The Franklin Brothers are playing down on the pier with the boats in the background. And then we're having our annual fireworks party at the studio where we open up the windows and just watch the fireworks and have a good time. And everybody stays till three in the morning. It's lots of fun. It's awesome. Yeah. You had a party last night, right? Yeah. Yeah. I usually bring the Microsoft team together uh, every six months or so that's in the local area. You know, I always, it's challenging bouncing between being Canadian and working with Microsoft Canada versus. Redmond, you know, headquarters is two hours drive away. Yeah, yeah. So I, I make some time to hang with the Microsoft Canada guys and we talk through various projects and things. And so ribs and chicken. Yeah, well, uh, never hurts. Never hurts. Especially your ribs, my friend. They're mighty, mighty good. Well, thank you. Thank you very Not much. Not bad I, for a Canadian. I uh, spent uh, I spent some time in Tennessee learning from the experts. All right. So let's roll the music because I got some COBOL for you. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? You know, it seems like every few years somebody writes, you know, COBOL is coming back. <laughs> it never went anywhere. That's the real true story, yeah. So let me read a couple of headlines going back to 2001. Tech Republic says, COBOL programmers are back in the game. Computer World, October 4th, 2006. COBOL, not dead yet. ComputerWeekly.com, April 22nd, 2008. COBOL programmers back in demand. And now in July 2015, Hacker Rank is just but one blog. And this one uh, is titled The Inevitable Return of COBOL. Go to tinyurl.com slash COBOL is dead. Long live COBOL. <laughs> Could that be any longer? <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I bring it up just because, you know, we've, Everybody likes to laugh at COBOL that's doing modern languages and stuff. And just because, you know, it's an old language. It was yep. like 1959 or something when something it was written. Like that, yeah, yeah, something like that. But there's some really interesting stats here on in this blog. And that's why I brought it up. Because 60 million patients are cared for daily on systems written in COBOL. 95% of ATM transactions every day are written in COBOL. 96% of vacations booked daily are handled by COBOL code. Sure. 60 million lines of code at the Social Security Administration. 80% of point-of-sale transactions every day. 50 million lines of code at the IRS. 
That's why my taxes are so high. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one would argue your taxes are lower because they've not upgraded. Yeah, one would argue, right? The the logic is impossible to upgrade. Yeah, That's not true, of course. But um, it really speaks to this interesting idea that, you know, change is slow. Well, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, right. That's right. You know, the big thing I found working with companies that still have, I, I recently did a, a week-long architectural planning gig with an insurance company. And uh, at the center of that business is still a bunch of IBM 360s. You know, that's what does their actuarial computation. Mm-hmm. What all that we've done is wrap them in .NET services. Yeah. So, you know, they, you, there's nobody using the green screen anymore. Right. The S360 is still back there. He's just calling through this layer down to them because they don't want to touch those actuarial tables. They work. Yeah. Well, thank Grace Hopper for that, the mother <laughs> of COBOL. Yeah. So just an interesting thing to consider when, you know, you go to your customer who's who's had their COBOL mainframes online since 1959 or whatever it was, and you try to bring all some .NET to them and stuff, and they're all like, you know, not buying it. So, well, you know, maybe they'll wrap it, but they're not going to turn that machine off. Yeah. You know, is there really a reason? And and the cost of return, you know, these machines are pretty depreciated. Like, they're paid for. Um, they, they have a maintenance overhead to them. They get mm-hmm. new processors on a regular basis. I watched a team of IBM lab coats come in on a running mainframe, yeah. shut down a two-processor block. Serve, the machine's still running. It's just missing two of its processors. Mm. Change them out for new ones and then fire them back in again. Another thing to think about is that the people that know COBOL now are old. Yeah, they are aging. And they're aging, and they're they're not going to outlive these machines. And so there is pretty much no college teaching COBOL anymore. And, um, you know, there aren't enough people to fill those jobs. Now, granted, today those jobs are in the hundreds, you know, versus the thousands posted for Java or C Sharp or anything like that. But... You know, and I, I'm just being relative here. Of course, there's not yeah. hun- just hundreds of jobs, but uh, you know, there's an opportunity there for anyone who wants to find a niche and uh, knit granny squares on the weekends. So, <laughs> yeah. Did I say that? <laughs> anyway, that's what I got today, Richard. Who's talking to us? Uh, grabbed a comment off a show 1020, the one we did with one Seth Juarez before he was the Channel 9 guy. Yeah. When we were talking about machine learning in the cloud. Mm. And Michael Wojcik said, uh, it was a pretty interesting podcast. I'm in the middle of investigating machine learning in our company, and I must say that ML is not productized enough. When developers are reading about it, they're being hit with mathematical elements too quickly. I believe that to a certain extent, we need to approach technical people like the business customer with this idea. They don't have to talk about how it's built or what it uses and so forth, but focus on the value that it brings. Otherwise, it gets too scientific. People have a hard time seeing the value. Then machine learning doesn't get implemented. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's something offline. We've talked to Seth about a number of times. It's like, how do we present this concept of machine learning without it? falling into its mathematical constraints, which mm-hmm. is just, I don't think people care. We don't focus on the math behind a cryptographic algorithm, you know, like yeah. it, we just use the thing. So I think ML's always had this problem of just not being well presented. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your comment. The .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We post our every show to Facebook and Google Plus, and you can comment there. 
and we'll send you a mug from there as well. And of course, if you want to tweet us, I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, we we do read our tweets and sometimes we even answer them. So <laughs> uh, that brings us to our guest. Uh, Tudor Girba obtained his PhD in 2005 from the University of Bern and now works as a consultant and coach. He leads the work on the Moose platform for software and data analysis. He founded the Glamorous Toolkit Project for Rethinking the IDE, and he is a board member of the Faro Live Programming Environment, P-H-A-R-O. Tudor advocates that software assessment must be recognized as a critical software engineering activity, and he authored the Humane Assessment Method to help teams to rethink the way they manage large software systems and data sets. Tudor developed the Demo-Driven Innovation Method as a combination of design thinking, idea prototyping, and storytelling. In 2014, he won the prestigious Dal Nygaard Jr. Prize for his work on modeling and visualization of evolution and interplay of large numbers of objects. Welcome, Tudor. Yeah, nice to, nice to be here. That's quite an impressive uh, uh, array of accomplishments in your bio there. Fantastic. Well, that's what bios are there for. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're here to talk about moose and data analysis and software analysis. Right. Give us the uh the 30,000 foot view. Well, I mean, it's it's great that you introduced the whole thing with with COBOL. Um because that's where it all starts. There's another interesting study not not too long ago that was showing uh, that there we're, we still have around some 10,000 mainframe still systems still in use. Yeah. So the idea is this. Um, once a software, you know, by the way, it's called software, right? And it, this, this came as, um, like when they named it, I guess, they, they wanted to emphasize that one is easy, the other one is not easy, so they call the <laughs> other one hardware. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not called easyware now, is it? Or simpleware. Nobody ever said that. The interesting thing is that the hardware, that building that was there at the beginning now fits in my pocket, and the other one went the other direction. Mm -hmm. the, the, the funny thing about software is that um, once you put it out there, you can't just take it off. Right? I mean, one, one thing Richard said is that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This mm -hmm. is also what, uh, what that blog post says. Yeah. But it's not really that, you know, it's not really true. It's not that we don't want to, to take it down. It's just that we can't afford it. Yeah, and um, my my um, contention there is that we are not investing in this preparation. We're not investing. We're not building our systems in a way uh, that will make it easy for us to disassemble them in the future. Right. So I'm essentially saying, and by the way, there's another study recently uh, telling that uh, we're adding to the software base about eighteen percent. So we're growing with about eighteen percent every year. Um, essentially, the speed at which we're building software dramatically um, dramatically outpaces our ability to to recycle it. Right. So we're essentially right now. I'm arguing that we're essentially in a period similar to the plastic industry of the last century, where we were just building plastic without any regard of what's going to happen with it after we don't need it anymore. And I think we do the same thing with software. So we're really focusing dramatically only on the on the building part without really caring what's going on afterwards. So, and this is where Moose comes in. So Moose is a little platform that, that wants, with which we want to show, it's an open source project, by the way, it's supported by like five universities right now. 
Um, it has a um, couple of hundred man years of effort invested in it. Um, I happen to lead that project. And our goal is to show how would, how would looking at software systems, um, how should that look like? So taking software systems apart. And um, sometimes like, people ask me, so what, what do I do? And I often tell them that I, I, um, I help developers not read code. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because like, think about it. Like, developers read for most of their time, regardless of what they do. They read code for at least 50% of their time. Yeah. And you, uh, usually it's code they wrote, but they're still reading it, trying it, to figure out what they were does, thinking when they wrote it. it Exactly. But here's the, here's, the, here's the thing. When was the last time developers talk about or talked about reading code? Yeah, I got to say, even on this show, we don't talk about reading code. No. It, nope. Nobody talks about reading code. Well, that essentially means that we as an industry, we spend the largest chunk of our budget on something we never talk about. Mm. And so... That's a great point. And the interesting thing is that if, you, if, we, would do, if we would start to talk about it, then we will figure out that code reading is pretty much the most manual way to approach large amounts of data, which large amounts of data is what a million lines of code is, which is mm. not even large. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the funny thing. If you give a developer a million rows in a database, then he will, he will start with uh, writing a query, then reading a little bit, then writing another query, reading, writing, reading. But there will be, the query is the first thing he'll start with. Mm. You give the same developer a million lines of code, and you'll start scrolling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, what a good point. He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, Although I can't tell you because I've never actually been given a million lines of code to figure out before. I see. So, okay. So you have no, you have no um, contact with. A million's a lot. A million's a lot of lines of code. Yeah. Really? For one, for one person to has uh, let me ask oh. you has one has a uh, has somebody ever come to you and say here's a USB key with a million lines of code on it learn it and we'll have a report on Monday? I mean, yeah, that's is it. This is what I do for a living. But a million lines of code. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, of yeah, code. I yeah. I just I just I mean there is this um nice quote by I think it was Woody Allen. He said that he took um a course in speed reading. Yeah, and he he read uh, War and Peace in fifteen minutes, and he said it's about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So yeah, but that's the point. The point here is we have systems that have millions of lines of code. Yeah, it's not it's not that we are short of those, um, but the thing is, obviously, nobody has. It's impossible. You can't. You don't have time to read a million lines of code. By the way. If you would have to read a million lines of code, let's say you read um, pretty fast and constant and say one line in two seconds, it would take you about three to four man months yeah. to read it, effort, plain, full time, right? You don't have time to read that. And so obviously we don't read the whole thing. And here's the problem. The problem there is that um, we are always acting in the presence of incomplete information. Now, the problem with code reading isn't, I mean, code reading is great because it's the most flexible tool we have. Yeah. But that's a tool. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is just understand enough of our system so that we can make decisions. Right. And we make, we want to make maybe a dozen decisions every day. So we don't have time to read the whole thing. But if we could, we would. 
Now, here's, here's where it starts. So again, if we go back to this SQL example, right, the, the, there's a big difference, first of all, in the tool that, that, that the developer is being exposed to. The, the SQL, whatever tool you have, at the, at the top of it, it has a place where it says, here, enter the query. Mm. So he will enter the query first because it's there. Now, where is the where is the where is the entry the query entry in our ID? You know, something to say. Give me pr- quickly all those things that are annotated like this, used that are mapped on this table, and they are be still being used from this part of the UI. Should that give me? Yeah, how do I get an overview? Yeah, but should that not be the first thing? I mean, we're developers. That's what we are paid to do. By the way, we're yeah. paid to, to actually we're paid to automate somebody else's decision making. If right. I'm thinking, if you gave me a data set of a million names and addresses, I would quickly do some aggregates to figure out roughly where they were from. Hey, this exactly. is all U.S. addresses or it's, you know, different countries in the world, things yeah. like that. Exactly. I think just exactly. answering the question from a million lines of code of, so how many classes is this? How many yeah. methods is this? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a Exactly. And just, this, these, these are simple things, right. But then you want to be, once you're able to extract things fast, now imagine you can extract any piece of information from your system and then visualize it in the most proper way you can think of. Now, you would want to be very aggressive with the way you would use those tools. I mean, why? Why? I don't want to, if you think about it, just saying how many classes are there, that's a generic thing that it's a generic analysis that they can just apply on any systems. True. By the way, actually, there are many systems. I mean, there are lots of query systems like that that really provide you with re- reports of sorts. Uh, you know, design flaws or possible bugs and things like that. Um, based on, for example, static analysis. Yep. Now, the, here's here's the problem with those. Um, I figured we were headed there for sure, right? Like, isn't this about ranking cyclomatic complexity at some point? For example, you know, complement complex you know, cyclomatic complexity. Let's just pick that one up. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, here's, let's, we just map and do a heat map of where cyclomatic complexity really is. And so that's a, that's a one way of doing this. Um, now, here's the problem with this. Now, that, that analysis, I can apply it on your system. I can apply it on my system equally well, and it will produce a, a really beautifully um, anti-aliased uh, visualization that is you can just show to the manager and he'll be impressed. Now, here's the problem with that. Um, if we, if we, if we uh, limit ourselves only to that kind of analysis, let's see, what does that analysis, by definition, that analysis has to, has to be generic enough to be applicable to both our system. But maybe your system is in telecommunication and mine is in insurance. What right. do we have in common? Okay, maybe we use the same language. But is this really where the value of our systems comes from? No. The value comes from the architecture. It comes from the way we encode the domain. It comes from all sorts of decisions that we made that this is where the value is in, the, wow. in our decisions, not in the underlying platform. Mm-hmm. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Stackify fully integrates application performance management with error and log management in one platform capture performance issues as they happen without having to wait for them to reoccur. A cost-effective and lightweight agent provides you code-level insights. Try Stackify now for free and get your copy of the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game once you activate your account. 
Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to get your free game. So are we heading towards an idea of could I analyze code to figure out what design patterns were being used? Uh yeah, but not not somebody else's design patterns, my design patterns. Okay. So if I say, let's say, imagine this. Imagine that I have some sort of a server and there I have um, a way to say that my services should be clustered. And the way I do it is that I'm going to annotate all those services with a certain annotation. Right. Okay. Now, isn't it important that for every future new service that I create, I ensure that that will also come with the, at, with the clustered mm. annotation. Mm-hmm. It's a simple thing, right? It's just it, the applications are boundless. I mean, knowing about your code just in that kind of aggregate is really valuable for so many reasons. This is what we got slightly wrong with these generic tools. What they emphasize is that here's a 10,000 uh, repository of rules. Go pick which the one you want. Well, I think... The most interesting, and then they boast, you know, because one has 10,000, the other one has 10,001, so the one with 10,001 is better. And uh, that's that's how you compare those tools. But I think this is wrong to what you want, because we're developers. That's the interesting thing about us. So we know how to program. So instead of focusing on how many metrics, analysis, visualizations you can provide out of the box, the question should rather be, how fast can you build a metric? a visualization query. And what if the answer to that that question is 15 minutes? Hmm. So how would it be? You want to find something out, you take 15 minutes, and you find it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we want to do with Moose. We want to show how that's possible. So we're talking about being able to do rapid, like routine, almost, I would almost think you want real time as code is being created or modified. Like, I mean, I'm totally with you on this idea of this metric. More is not better. You know, here's a here's a method that does this particular task that does it a thousand lines of code. Here's what it does it in ten, which is better. Like, mm-hmm. Don't don't we really want less code? Well, the ten lines of code may have a lot of dependencies as well. You know, where it might just be at a higher level. So you need to track those as well, don't you? Yeah, that that's true. And the other thing is that sometimes you bringing in ten by making it less less explicit, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not about how large or small a system is, I think, uh, because the systems will ev- inevitably larger than inevitably become larger than uh, than what can fit easily in our brain. So, and it's again not about that code reading is bad, but we shouldn't use code reading as a way to find the interesting places to read. So. Those that that part finding the interesting things to read, that part, that should be automated, because we know how to do it. Are we trying to get to the core question here, which is why would you ever read code? Like, what are you trying to accomplish when you read code? I want to. I want to change. I want to change it. I want to figure out where a bug comes from. Um, that's that's pretty much. I want to figure out an impact of my change. I want to understand where a function, where should I, where should I start uh, implementing a functionality from? So those are those all those things are just analysis questions. So, but that right? also means there's a presumption there that 
the code already compiles. Like we know what it does because we ran it. Uh, not necessarily. It can also be the other way around. So, for example, I again talking about this clustering thing. So I was working with the which team, and then they figured out that I think that we're we. I think our system isn't clustered, although we say it is. Right. Okay. So let's quickly build an experiment. I, I don't. I mean, that's the way, that's why we do it. So you have a hypothesis at this point, and now you want to build an experiment. So how do you build that experiment? Well, let's see. Well, if it's a clustered system, then it means that I can spawn multiple nodes of it. Then I can throw multiple clients against it, ensure that all nodes are being busy by at least one client. And then I take one node down, and then I ensure that all clients uh, still continue to get served. Right. That's, that's how you test. Okay, that's the experiment. Now, okay, now we found out, after that experiment, we found out indeed that there's no clustering. It doesn't really work the way they thought it does. Well, we don't know if there's no clustering. We just know that it failover doesn't work. Yeah, okay, exactly. Okay, so, but it didn't work, right? So that thing didn't work. Okay, then we investigate a little bit more, and then we found out, yes, indeed, we were, uh, the team was not using the, the, the infrastructure correctly. So then right. they... They came back to this, okay, so the only thing we need to do is configure it in this way. So for every service, you need to have this configuration. Okay, so now at that point in time, we ensured, uh, we wrote this rule, and then we put it in the continuous integration, saying that all services have to have this annotation. That people went through it manually because some of the services actually work with the disk, so it, you, know, you couldn't just do a, a replace, um, a search and replace. For everything, it needed to have, you, we need to have manual um, manual uh, inspection at that point, but we knew exactly what the problems were. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the inspection for each service maybe took 15 minutes. Right. Um, and so then at the end, people, well, at the end, we had all those things that should be annotated, they were annotated, and the rest they were having an annotation saying that they should not be, or so it should be ignored. Right? Great. Now, were we done? No, we were not done. Um, so at that point in time, because our original experiment was done only with one service, but our system had a couple of hundred services. So at that point, we said, okay, now we need to repeat the same experiment, but now with all services. Now, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to have that little thing that exercises each of those services. Great. So let's go and write that one. So how do I do it? How do I know when I'm done? Oh, wait, let's write a little rule saying that every service that is annotated with cluster should be exercised by whatever tool you have to exercise a service with. So, for example, should have a little test. That's a static tool. That's a static analysis. Then we had the list of our 200 services. Then people went through it, wrote those pieces of code for each of them. Then we, when we were done, we had all the services there annotated for each of them. We, we knew that we have exactly one uh, one way to, uh, we had a way to exercise that service so we could repeat our experiment. Then we were done, we validated, and the only thing that was left afterwards were those two rules. And those were static rules in that case. So even though we were, we were testing something functional, right. the, the rule, the, the check was static. And that's where it becomes interesting because once you have those tools and they are cheap to build, you can use them in your daily life. Mm-hmm narrow down to the things that matter yeah and because there are so many ways and by the way you know like architecture when i mean everybody you know like especially in agile development people say yeah the, the architecture should emerge now how should you emerge that well, well for example you do ttd that's great ttd is fantastic but it's still functional it's a functional decomposition of our system 
Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have all the incentives to exercise your structure. So maybe or maybe not. You may, you don't know if the structure will actually end up the way you think it should. And I'm actually arguing that the way architecture evolves, the structure, the way the structure evolves, um, that's a complex game. It's not a complicated game in terms, for example, of the Hinefin framework. Um, this is a complexity part comes with a, it's a complexity theory. Um, and the difference between complicated and complex is that a complicated thing, uh, you know, like a mechanical watch, it can have hundreds of little things inside, but it's always deterministic. While the complex one is just has, is deterministic only in retrospective. Right. Right. You know way, why it turned out the way it has. Like a, a um, should I, I, I shouldn't say Google search, maybe I should say Bing search. Um, you know, a like bingo. You do a bingo, yeah. a bingo search. Um, so you do it one, you do it now, and then you do it in two minutes, and then it comes different, mm, right? And so, but you can't predict uh, until b- before you run it. So, and that's that's how that's how architecture happens, because it's the architecture is is not the drawing. <laughs> By the way, interesting thing about drawings. So when I was, um, you know, visiting companies like let's say five years ago, there was still this this fashion at least around here in the. Switzerland, Germany, um, of of having these huge diagrams, you know, printed on the wall with the, with the system, yes. which is really which is funny. Um, it's we, like love UML, we love them. We love those diagrams. But the cool thing about that was to look at the color of the paper. Right? It was always <laughs> it was always yellowish. <laughs> so and that's that's what we say you know the problem is that that reality does not conf- it never it never matches the reality in the in the in the in the source in the source repository well richard yeah buddy you know what time it is uh must be that happy time again yeah it's time to redefine cobol it used to be completely outdated badly overused language but now it's code outdated but often loved <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! You've been writing at uh, you've been writing. Um, I don't know what you've been writing. What have you been writing? Uh, I don't know acronyms. Acronyms. You've been writing acronyms. Yeah, I'm an acronym writer in my spare time. Uh, actually, it's time to give away a D Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries, and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today. And leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is David B. Sanderson. Oh, congratulations, David. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes, sir. Yep, he just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. That's a huge pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about, of course, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. Hey, we have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club that you got to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guest, Tudor, if you had $5,000 US to spend on technology today, what do you think you'd buy? Oh, that's a funny question. 
Ah. So I noticed that you you picked um, um, not a very high currency, but that's okay. <laughs> oh my my my! Is that where we're going? <laughs> no no no, it's fine. So I, um, <laughs> well, I suppose uh, I picked on Cobol enough, so yeah, yeah got to expect something <laughs> come back. So um, hmm, what would I buy? Well, here's okay. Be- you buy a whole One bunch thing- of drachma for that, I think. Yeah. Right oh. <laughs> oh, yes, you could. Yeah. All right, well, now we're going to go down the making fun of currency path. That's where we're going. <laughs> no, no, hey, no, he no, opened no. the door. So, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's me. So here's what I'd buy. I'd buy um, as many Raspberry Pis I could, uh, I could with that money. I guess it would be like 150 or so. Something yeah. like that, yeah. Um, you can make then, it rain, Raspberry Pi. Right, Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and then I, I'd I'd give it for free. Uh, I'd just go to maybe a couple of freshmen, like mm-hmm. 150 of them, mm-hmm. and just give them each of them a Raspberry Pi, and I say, "Here's where your software should go. Nice. Will go yeah. in the next 20 years." Yeah, well, you know, I've been baking all my life, and if I knew I could sell a Raspberry Pi for 50 bucks, I'd have been doing it long ago. <laughs> uh, you know yeah. you're you're like the third person in a row we've interviewed that said the same exact thing raspberry really? pi yeah, yeah just in the last couple of days that's cool yeah yeah i think i think um i think there's a huge there's a huge wave that is coming and we are not prepared for it that's why i think recycling software is such an important thing mm, yeah. because once because once we you know once we let loose the hardware with the software, then it's even even harder to take it apart. Yeah, and that's why that's why I think we have to spend, you know, s- stop a little bit and just think about how do we spend the largest portion of our budget. And sure. by the way, you know, you open any magazine you want, any any IT magazine you want, and almost nobody talks about that. Really, it's. Yeah. And it's it's a fascinating thing for me. So, um, but we we talked about Moose. But what I think is actually like for us, Moose is is, um, is primarily a teaching device. Okay. Okay. You can use it, and you can go and analyze and actually solve real problems. So teaching um, you about your code. No, teaching no, you teach developers because here's the interesting thing. You know, like 15 years ago, testing wasn't a development issue. Right, testing mm-hmm. was a, a QA issue. Yes. And what what happened? What happened once we started to talk about it? And what happened wasn't that everybody's using JUnit. What happened is that now we don't ask. We don't ask should we test. We ask how should we test. Right. And that's that's where the difference is. This is what happens once you get to start to talk about those elephants. It's not the technology that is important. That technology, it's, you know, like the, the unit, the X unit thing has been done over and over again. And then we leaped beyond it. And now the latest uh, testing infrastructures, they're not even called X units because they have even different concepts. Right. And that's, that's the key thing. We, there's, uh, you know, we need to, we need to have a place to start from. So that's what we want to do with Moose, but that's not, it's not the ultimate technology by any means. Because, you know, once you look at the, the problem there is just look at code and don't see text, but see data. And once you see data, 
okay, did one thing, you know, you'll you'll get odd things like that guy from the Matrix that would see red and blondes. <laughs> that's uh, that's <laughs> that's uh, that's what I'm talking about. But once you see data, then all the tools that you use to actually serve customers, you will realize that they are applicable to your problems too. Right. And so it's an educational problem primarily, I think. And then there's a whole thing that comes afterwards. Now, imagine imagine you are able to do those things. Imagine you're able to extract any information you want within, the, you know, instantaneously. Basically, those tools are so cheap that they don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, in that moment, the business process or the mental process changes. Right? There's an opportunity that otherwise, you know, we, we spend, we were, you're replacing human labor, like, uh, manual labor with automation. So this is doesn't this doesn't eliminate the need for the human. It just frees the human to just think of what's important. So um, that's why you know, like for example, uh, if you would if you would see somebody plowing the fields with his with his bare hands, you would say, well, that's inhumane, right? Yeah, they're trying right. to pull the now, plow himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even exactly. plowing with a mechanical plow with a Oxen, it's a, like it's yeah, all pretty archaic. No, that's that's what I that's what that's the feeling I get when I see a developer scrolling through a text file. Yeah, right. And so, and that's why the method that I built on top of that is called humane assessment. I gotcha. That makes because sense. We it, need becomes, to think- it becomes inhumane when a more automated alternative exists. Exactly, but we we don't realize it, right? We don't because like. Maybe a long time ago when people didn't have the, let's say, you, you take somebody that didn't have the field, and then he got the field, he would be so happy to plow that field with his bare hands, just because, you know, in comparison with the previous thing, it was a great opportunity at that moment. Well, and there are benefits but, to plowing a field, you know, exercise, keeping fit. But uh, yeah, do, do the same I, I things can... apply to automation? Or, <laughs> you know, is there any <laughs> inherent benefit to scrolling through a million lines of code other than, you know, you're increasing your finger muscles maybe or <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> ruining your eyes? I don't know. Haven't thought about that, but I'll take, I'll take it with me. Hey, that's my job to think of funny <laughs> alternatives to real serious problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. So this Moose is a set of tools for helping you do humane it's assessment. A, it's a we call it a platform. So okay. it's it's you think of it as an, an SQL plus a, think of it as Excel but for software. Okay. Right. So it, that's that's pretty much it, right? So you have you don't have a, maybe you have a ways you have operators that you can apply and you can combine, but it's not um, it's not for for tablet tabulated data, but it's for for data in general so for objects so we represent the software system we build a model out of it um, and that's just the model so once you have a model then you know what to do with it right and we just give you a tool that you can with which you can quickly put things together and so and our goal you know like like the the analysis that you build with with our tool is they're just little programs Mm. Those programs are built in, um, in uh, so this Moose is built on top of Faro. Faro is a live programming environment. It's pretty much, I think, one of the coolest things that uh, nobody heard of. Um, <laughs> Until now. So what is Faro? An immersive programming experience, huh? Yeah. So I, I've already it, got it, okay. one of those. Okay, What's, okay. <laughs> um, so but, what uh, is this re- one? 
but we really mean it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> now this is so it's a it's a small talk inspired system, um, which means that the ID and um, and the code and your code and the base code they're all in the same place and they are just objects and it's a uniform. You can manipulate with the same things, both the meta class or your person. So it's 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 very uniform and it's very simple, elegant, um, and it's very it has a concise way of, of working with. So uh, is it a, data. is Faro a VM kind of thing? It's a VM plus um, plus uh, an object model plus an ID all together. Wow, interesting. Okay. So and, and, and Moose exists. I got to say for Windows, Mac, and Linux also. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So is Faro. So Faro, well, the VM was reasonably populated because of Smalltalk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, wow. that's. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, once are, you have are, that, are mere mortals going to be able to figure this stuff out? I mean, one of the problems that we have that's with a great thing. With, uh, I love that question. I love that question. I mean, that seems very academic. You know, it, it's it, and so here's here's okay. Here's the thing. So I um. I had a problem with some sort of a, okay, in that case was JE, was some sort of hibernet mapping, whatever, and moving from version whatever to version 3.5, then something happened when using MS SQL uh, in very specific cases. If you didn't have a line in the XML, okay, a very specific line, a very specific setting, you would get a runtime error in a very specific um, configuration, okay? So, then we documented that one. How would you document that? Well, we wrote an XPath. Is XPath difficult, you think? Uh, it, there were more difficult things than XPath. That's what I'm thinking, too. So, my question now here is, okay, maybe let's say the code model is is difficult and so on and so forth. Okay, let's, I, okay. Let's put that one aside. Mm-hmm. I can I get back to that later. But what prevents developers from checking their XML configurations? Yeah, good point. Nothing. It's an educational problem. Right. It's not a it's not a real thing. Now let's take from the shelf our code model, right? So what's a code model? So there you have uh, a namespace that has classes inside and the class has methods inside and the method calls another method. So you have a graph. It's just an object model representing a graph. Um, you give it to somebody and says, here's the meta model out of it. Here's the schema. And then they'll, or here's the API even. And then they'll figure out how to query that one. Now here's the more interesting thing. Um, in any do- in any significant system that I have seen, the domain model was significantly more complicated, so it had more concepts than the code model. So it's not even a question of how it difficult is it to learn, because we learn much more complicated things, and we can swim through them. That's not really the problem. Once you do it, once you jump and see how that is, once then you'll figure out. That's that's where the difficult hmm. thing is. And this Rosal uh, Ross, thing? Ross, yeah, Rosal is, um, is a visualization engine. So, uh, yeah, as I said, our analyses are all, all little programs and all the engines we have, they're internal DSLs, so they have these fluent APIs, and they really look like nice little snippets. Mm-hmm. And our goal is actually to um, make the analysis so that 
our goal is to reach a, an analysis that is meaningful and doesn't need a scroll bar to to go through it. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's our business. Our business: how do we make that one concise? Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing you should know about Moose is that everything you do has a visual representation. So you get you get we we put a lot of emphasis on on immediate feedback. So all this live programming that um, Faro offers, it's it's um, emphasized a lot in in Moose as well. Yeah. And so and the other interesting thing is that more recently because. Uh, there is a very close collaboration between Moose and Faro. Um, this is where this glamorous toolkit um, comes into play. So that's a, that's a project in which we built. So the question there is, now we suppose you have all those tools. And for example, with Moose, suppose you want to apply it to .NET or Java. Um, that's an external tool. It's, it's like an animal that lives outside of your own farm. Uh, but the question would be, how would the idea look like once you start with these concepts built in. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that it looks different. And so that's what we built with, uh, with the Glamorous Toolkit. Now, okay. maybe a funny thing, the, why, why do we call it Glamorous? Yeah. Um, um, because, well, I think programming is like the, the coolest thing we've invented after philosophy and physics. And it's, you know, it's because physics is, was, is always executable, right? Because you can test that one. Philosophy is just, incredibly interesting and with programming we have both right because we have these incredibly interesting things that we can make executable that's right it's a, you know programming is is really glamorous and i think a glamorous activity like programming really deserves an appropriate toolkit okay you've convinced me <laughs> <laughs> i think so where do i start in this i mean we have all these moose the human assessment process pharaoh gt yeah. like there's all these pieces where do you get going well, you hire me. No, sorry. <laughs> Touche. It's all open source, but nobody can understand it. <laughs> no. So the way you started is um, I'd actually, um, but here's the caveat. Um, once you start with this, there's no going back. Right. So, I'm, you know, maybe you want to, you know, it's really a red pill, blue pill thing. Um, but it, suppose you want to start it. Um, then... You just join the communities that we we built, and um, you start trying. Because it's really that easy. You just figure it out once, and then you just don't want to go back. Hmm. Well, Tudor, that this sort of feels like the end here. Uh, is there anything else that you want to cover before we wrap it up? Well, as I as I said before we started, thanks for the for the opportunity. It was a pleasure being here, and the. If, if there's anything that you that I want to leave the audience with is is really this just let's start talking about how you read code and we will figure out how the details we'll figure it out later uh, what we need to do right now is start talking about it awesome thanks again Tudor it's been great talking to you thank you alright and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, 
and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a